Now, as we look at the book of Esther, we get to the first chapter, and the first chapter is, is, is a little different. It's unusual. The whole book of Esther is a little different, and it's unusual as a book in the Bible, but it has some great things for us to learn. We're going to look at the whole first chapter. Now, on your bulletin, the sheet that came with your bulletin, for those of you that got one that had it, um, we have Esther chapter 1, but not all of Esther chapter 1, because it took more than a sheet, and I'm not smart enough to print on two sides at once. So, as we look at this, one of the things I want you to be thinking about, as we look at this whole book, and as we spend time in the book of Esther, oftentimes we can wonder, in our lives, where's God right now? Is he working? Why can't I see him working? I don't see obvious signs that God is working. So where is he? We have those times in our life where we begin to be, be plagued by these types of things. Now, this is the book of Esther. Those questions. This is what this is about. The world of Esther is very much like our world. It's a strange book in the Bible. It has no mention in the whole book of the name of God. Why? Well, we're going to see that as we work through that. We have God's people. They're in this, this metropolis called Susa, and they are in exile. They're strangers in a strange land. And we are much like that biblically. We are much like that as Christians. Our ultimate allegiance is not to our country. Our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus Christ. And so what do you do when you see you're, 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 you're in this uh, stranger in a strange land? You don't quite fit in in some ways. You don't see God working in obvious ways necessarily at any particular time. And in this book, very much like that, there's no overt miracles. There's no visions. There's no healings. There's nothing like that. And this is where we can find ourselves in this day, too, at times. Now, let me just be straight. Does God still heal? Yes, he does. Can God still do miracles? Of course he can. Can God still speak in visions and dreams? Yes, he can do any flipping thing he wants to. He's God, he can do those things. But sometimes they don't happen and we wonder why. And this gets to the heart of how God changes lives. Because what we have to think about as believers, as followers in Jesus Christ, and maybe you're here today and you're not a believer, you're not a follower in Jesus Christ, okay, well this is, I'm gonna clue you in on something that we have to wrestle with. How does God change a life? How does God change a life? Because so often in Scripture, what we see is miracles don't change lives. It's an interesting thing, and it's throughout Scripture. You see in the book of Exodus, God does these incredible, incredible miracles for the Israelites, and, and, they, and just days later, weeks later, they're complaining. They're saying, where's God? I think he's deserted us. Is he really, you know, blah, blah, blah. Moses, you're an idiot. And, and they get going on that. Because miracles don't necessarily change a person's heart. We see it in the life of Jesus. In John 12, 37, it says that Jesus performed many miracles and they still would not believe. We see that after the resurrection, some of the disciples met Jesus. And it says, and they still doubted. They still struggled with belief. So this is an important truth for us to understand. Miracles don't necessarily change a person's heart. And I'm not anti-miracle. I don't even know that that's a, such a thing. But I have to understand what changes a person's heart. Because change that lasts for eternity has to be, and we say this all the time, it has to be change that works from the inside out. 
It comes by grace through faith when we believe. And so we get to this overarching theme of this book, this book with no miracles, but we see something. God delivers his people through his servant who intercedes for them in order to rescue them. And if you think about that, this is the overarching theme of the book of Esther, but that's the overarching theme of the Bible. The book of Esther is this wonderful, beautiful story, this poignant story in the middle of the Bible, which is telling the same story in various ways through various different individual stories. Because that's one of the things we have to keep remembering. It's a beautiful story. It's an incredible story. This is a great, just on standing on alone, great literature, great storytelling. So God delivers his people through his servant who intercedes for them in order to rescue them, which also is prefiguring Jesus Christ and what he did for us as our Savior. So we're going to look at three realities in the first chapter. And I know a lot of this first chapter is, is setting the stage for everything that happens, but there's some really interesting points here I think we can make as we look at this. First of all, I want you to see there is an unmatched king. There is an unmatched king. And I just want to read to you, I just want to read to you uh, the first three verses there on your sheet. It says, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. Oh, let me just say this too. If you're looking at your Bible, you may be right now looking at me going, Xerxes, my Bible does not say Xerxes, right? It's the same person, just a different name. Some versions use Xerxes, some use Asasuerus, however you pronounce the name. I can pronounce Xerxes easier, so that's the one I chose. <laughs> this is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. All right, let me just throw a quick map up here for you, just so you get an idea. If you look at his kingdom, it stretches to one side all the way to the east and all the way to Egypt and Libya and in between. And if you look at the thinking about where it is for you. Top left, where it says Thrace, that's Greece. And you see he has a part of Greece. He wants all of Greece. He's been the ruler for three years now when this banquet takes place. He wants all of Greece. And so he's bringing all these nobles, people from 127 provinces in, and he's going to have this banquet, this feast, this celebration that lasts 180 days, six months long, to impress them. Why? He needs troops. He needs troops to conquer Greece. Now, if you've seen 300 that is not anything like what really happened, but that is that is that that sort of the, the, that whole campaign that's starting to to happen there at that time. So this is what Xerxes is doing. He's throwing this incredible, lavish, and we say that's the most incredible thing. That is, to be honest, not unheard of in ancient days that they would do that type. It took so long to get everybody and all that type of thing. So that this, is, this is what's going on. So we see this, this unmatched king. And then in verses, and it's not on your sheet, but in verses four through, through nine, what it talks about is just simply the lavish party that he threw for all those people. Then there's a spot, and it, we're not exactly sure where it was, where seven special days were, were, were set apart. And 
more people were brought in and it got even more lavish. And this is where this takes place, okay? Um, he talks about there's a, there's a feast for all the rulers and it's happening in this capital, this Susa, which is the summer capital of, of the Persians and Medes of their empire. They had a northern capital, which, which uh, uh, this is their winter capital. I'm sorry, they had a northern capital, which was their summer capital. This is the winter capital because it's even warmer. That's why they're there. That's what this is about. I mean, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. Um, so, I mean, you know, you come away, nobody's going to remember that. So, we have this city, Susa. There are Jews living there. Those Jews are in exile because they were conquered and dragged there. Now, some have been able to go back, but not all. And so there, this is what's happening all around them. You have this king. He has a great army. He has great wealth. He has great power. You have God's people there, right? They have no army. They have no wealth. They have no power. They are strangers in a strange land. And they're faced, interestingly, with the same choices that we face. How then do I live? If I am a follower of God, if I am a follower of Jesus Christ, and this country is not ultimately my home, my number one allegiance is to Jesus Christ, not to the United States of America. How do I live? And there's basically three choices. I assimilate to the predominant culture, and some people did that. I just give in and go along with what the culture tells me and dictates. Another one is to withdraw, to have our own little holy huddles. We just get only Christians around. Um, um, uh, playing sports um, one time with, with a guy, and he was just like, I wish we could just all play Christians. And I was like, that would be the worst thing in the world. First of all, Christians tend to be worse sports than non-Christians in my, in my experience. Uh, but secondly, man, how would we share? Our whole life is supposed to be about sharing the gospel. So you can assimilate, you can withdraw, or you can walk distinctively for God's glory. Those are the three choices we have. Those are the three choices that the Jews had in Susa at this time that this is written. Same thing. Same thing. They had to make the same decision that we we have to make. And so then the question, this is the obvious um, application for us, is have, have you been assimilated? Have you embraced all the values that our society practices, the lifestyles? Or... Have you withdrawn? What does withdrawing look like? Well, do you only know Christians? Do you only interact with Christians? Is all your time spent with Christians? You may be withdrawing. You may not even realize that's what you're doing, but you may be withdrawing. And God says he wants us to have purposeful lives that reach people for Jesus Christ. And I can't do that if I've withdrawn. So have you been assimilated, have you withdrawn, or are you walking distinctively? Because if you're walking distinctively, the gospel will always come into conflict with culture. Our, the gospel of Jesus Christ is an equal opportunity offender. It offends every culture. It offends some cultures in different ways than others, you know, but it offends all cultures. And so we have to ask ourselves, is there anything about my life that somebody in my culture might not think was a great idea? Is there anything in my life that I get pushback on? Is there anything in my life that sometimes might cause friction with other people? That's something only, only you can answer. Only I can answer. 
and, I, and I'll be honest with you, I, I can really struggle with this because as a pastor, my job is working with Christians mostly. And so I have to be very intentional if I'm ever going to speak to anyone outside of this group and this building and my responsibilities. So we have an unmatched king. Secondly, we have an unhinged king, all right? And this is where this gets, it's just, this is such an incredible story. It's such an interesting story. And it is such a story that we can relate to because we can see this. In verses 10 through 12, let's read, I'm going to read this on your sheet there. On the seventh day, now this is that big special seven-day feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine. Okay, that's nice Hebrew for drunk. He commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass, which is an uh, unusual name there, right there, to bring, <laughs> why did I say that? To bring before him Queen Vashti, ro- wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. All right, so we have this proud, drunken boast, right? He, he says, wait till you guys see my wife, right? Okay, and then, and for many commentators, especially Jewish commentators who are much more familiar with the language, they said that the implied thing is here, she was told to come only wearing her crown and then dance seductively for thousands of men. All right, okay, I'm, I'm not gonna, there's nothing, I'm not gonna say anything funny. There's nothing, nothing there. She is a possession that he is showing off to feed his ego. He wants to show her beauty, and he is enraged that she won't come out and perform for him and all of them. See, this is what happens when a proud heart doesn't get what it wants. It gets rage, rage. It attacks his perception of power. He's thinking, I can tell millions of people what to do, but I can't tell my wife what to do. I can control nations, but he can't even control himself. So as we think about this, we need to stop and consider. How do we perceive things? See, this attacks his perception of power. What is power? Do we have misconceptions about things like power or love or justice or God, or sin, or good, or evil. All these other rulers, they are kings that he has defeated in battle, but he's allowed them to stay in control of their country as long as they're subservient to him. Some of them are governors. Some of them are people that he's put into positions of power. And they're, they're looking at him because he is the epitome of what power is. Who do we look to? for our ideas of power, of love, of justice, of all those things. We have to look to Jesus because he is the epitome for us. Any earthly representation is going to have failures and is going to fail in some way. I think about, you know, what people perceive as good and, and how people look at things... A number of years ago when the Ebola crisis got really bad for a while, and then if you remember, there were some American, there was an American doctor and some American nurses who got infected with Ebola, and they were treating them and trying to get them back home as quickly as could, get them to the center, to, to the CDC, 
uh, to get some of the latest treatments. And there were some famous people, and I'm not going to name them, just, there were some famous people, people in positions of power in our country, who said, no, don't bring them back. What are they doing there anyways? Let those people fend for themselves. And people would explain, well, you, th- these people, they went as missionaries. They went, they went to help these people. They're, they're running clinics. Well, then they knew what they signed up for. They should have stayed there. What are you saying? You're saying, because I don't want my family to be affected by them. See, what happened is there's this perception, well, then this is not good for me, so it's not good. And what does that mean? That means it's all about me. In fact, one person said, let them die there. I don't care if they're American citizens. Why? Because it's me first. These are perceptions of power, of right, of wrong that we have in our culture. And we can't fall for them. Because we look to Jesus. And Jesus said, let everyone come to me. Jesus rubbed the culture the wrong way. Jesus knew that if he kept doing these things, they'd kill him. And he did it anyways. Third thing we see here is a foolish king. I mean, he's, he's unmatched. The, the, if, you, if you get a chance, I, I'd encourage you this week, read the first chapter, then read the second chapter because we'll be coming up to it. But you'll see the incredible splendor and beauty. And you think about the power of a man who can call every ruler from a kingdom as large as that kingdom and say, come here, take six months because we're going to party. And he could do it. He could pull it off. But now we see his response. And I think the first thing I think about is he, he doesn't go to his wife. He goes to his buddies in his man cave, right? And he says to them, what are we going to do? Let's, let's, I'm going to read that. It's a long passage, but let me start at verse 13. And read the whole passage. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the kings. Karshana, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meriz, Marcina, and Memucan, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were the highest in the kingdom. According to law, what must be done with queen, to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken, for her, taken, that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Mimikin said, in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and all the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and have it, let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed in all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Mimikin proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdoms, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler of his own household using his native tongue. So what 
he says to them is, what am I going to do? All right, so let's just think about what's going on here. The king gets drunk. He makes an outrageous request of his wife. She says no. He is furious. So rather than settling it with his wife, he gets his buddies together. This is a recipe for disaster. All right? In their world and in ours. Let's keep that straight. Because just because someone's in a position of power, it doesn't mean they're wise. That doesn't necessarily come true. And so he asks, and this guy, Mimikin, his, one, of, one of his special advisors, do you notice what he does there? He starts with what she's done, and he inflates it. He says, listen, king, everyone's going to hear about this. All these women are going to start disobeying their husbands. Chaos, you know. It's going to be riots, and, and everything, will, everything will go crazy. You have to save the kingdom. Suddenly, her saying, you're drunk, you're asking something stupid, this is not something that normally happens. I'm saying no. That now has been elevated to your kingdom is at stake. It's about to go down the tubes. And he's played on that. He's exaggerating. He plays on the king's anger. This is the worst kind of advisor. Someone who will play on your anger is the worst kind of advisor to have. There's an important point here. We all, we all need someone who is willing to contradict us and check us. We all need someone who's willing to speak truth in a difficult situation. And Xerxes is so insecure, his ego is fragile. He lacks self-control, and to top it all off, he's surrounded by yes-men. So he's told, get rid of Vashti, and you will save every marriage in the kingdom. And so he blows up this marital spat, and now he thinks he's saving everyone. Xerxes is the poster child for why we need women in more positions of government. Now, I know some of you saying, some of you guys, you know what you're saying. You're saying, Bob, you are shamelessly pandering to women by saying that. No, I'm not. I'm shamelessly pandering to my wife by saying that. I just want to say that <laughs> real quick. And I'm not saying women are inherently better than men at governing. That's not the point. I'm saying that Xerxes, if he had a couple women in that circle of advisors, they might have said, whoa, hang on. Do you remember that you were drunk? Do you remember how stupid that was? And you made a fool of yourself in front of everybody? You need to be mad at yourself. Because I think she was right about this. See, if he had some advisors that would check him, would be, contradict him, and he'd be willing to listen, instead of just his drinking buddies, then he might have gotten better advice. So he does, he does what Mimikin says. We see that in verse 22. He sends this edict out. And so now, so now, the fact that Vashti said no to him has been broadcast throughout the whole kingdom. You see what he did? He's like, oh no, Right? Well, they don't have texting. They don't have emails. They don't have newspapers. They don't have TV. Nobody knew about this except the people who were there. He could have handled that in-house. Instead, he told every person in his kingdom, my wife said, no, I'm so mad. You know, that just, he got, just. And this book shows us something. It shows us the inadequacy of earthly rulers. Every leader is marked by sin and all sorts of failings, some more, some less. But the Bible 
unrelentingly, the Bible holds up the failings of earthly rulers so that God's people won't trust in them. They will learn who to trust. Because to trust a king, to trust a prime minister, to trust a president is to trust the wrong thing. We look to and we trust someone greater, Jesus Christ, who is the perfect king. Think of this. Think how he, in juxtaposition with, with, with Xerxes, Jesus is the humble king. He is the king who is under control. You never see Jesus out of control. He is just. He is merciful. You just go on and on and on. He's the opposite. His kingdom is different from every other kind of kingdom. Xerxes threw a party for the most powerful people in the whole nation. Jesus' kingdom is for the weak. Jesus' kingdom is for the outsider. Jesus' kingdom is for the broken. It's unlike every other kingdom. Jesus never exploited women. He elevated women in his society. He never abused his power. If you look in the, in, in the Gospels, as Jesus was taken out to be tempted in the desert, what was that temptation all about? It was Satan enticing Jesus to use his power for personal gain. Do this for yourself, Jesus. And Jesus said, it's not about me. It's about me doing the will of my Father. That's what this is about. And so we have to remember this. We can't trust in these people. We have to remember that we live, if we live for God, we will create friction in our society. There will be ways that we are out of step with our, our society. Paul created friction and they tried to kill him for it. He threatened the status quo. In fact, at one point with, with, with the Ephesians, the people said, these people are turning the world upside down. They're ruining the status quo. We got to do something about this. If we walk in justice and we walk in grace and we walk in love, there will be times where we will not fit. It is easy in our society to see an injustice and to not really care as long as it doesn't affect me or someone I love. It is easy for us to watch the news and see things that are going on in our country or throughout the world, but think, that doesn't affect me, so I don't really care. That would never happen with Jesus. Because he's against injustice, it doesn't matter who is, who is involved with it. It is easy in our society to be okay with people who exploit or use others as long as it makes me more comfortable or better off. It's easy for me to say, wow, that is really terrible, but I mean, actually, it helps me keep prices low. So I, I guess I'm okay with it. I don't think Jesus would do that. And so we look at Xerxes. He, he, he loves Vashti when she pleases him. He's okay with exploiting her if he can gain from her. He's a disaster as a husband. And the Bible tells us we have a greater husband. We are the bride of Christ. He is our husband. What kind of husband is he? Well, he serves his bride. He took our punishment. He does not shame his bride. He took our shame. There will be a feast better than Xerxes. And we, when we look at Jesus, we see he's the perfect husband. He's the perfect king. And so maybe... I think about, for everyone here, there's all kinds of people here, all different kinds of people here. Maybe you've been through some hard, difficult, maybe some tragic things. Maybe there's been some times in your life, maybe even now, you've been exploited by others. Maybe you've been used and thrown away in a callous, in a callous way. Maybe you've been in a relationship where someone didn't love you for you, but loved you for what they could get out of you, what you would do for them. Jesus says, that's not me. I'm not that way. 
uh, I did a wedding yesterday, and the bride and the groom wrote their vows, and they were, they were beautiful vows. But what I really liked about their vows was they expressed their love for each other, their love for this person for who they are. I love that you are this way. Sometimes when I do counseling, uh, like premarital counseling, I'll ask, oh, this is going to give it away to anybody who's going to have premarital counseling with me. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you, why do you love her? Why do you love him? And if you tell me, man, she makes me feel so good, I'm going to have a problem with that because she will not always make you feel good. He will not always make you feel good, and you cannot love a person for what they, you shouldn't love a person for what they give to you. Now, it's nice that they make you feel good. That's great. But you need to figure out what you love about this person that has nothing to do with you. That you love this person because of who she is, who he is, because that's what will make it last. Because if you're loving a person because they make you feel good, I'm telling you, you can't live with somebody 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, Occasionally, they're going to make you feel bad. You're going to be PO'd. You know, you're going to be di- it's going to be difficult. You're going to be so angry. And you've got, you got to get through that. Because this is what happens. This is what happens all the time around us. We see this. People say, well, I love, but after a few years, I realize well, I don't love you anymore. Well, what the heck is that? So, always be careful when someone frames their declaration of love for you in a way that centers on them. You want to find someone who cares for you and loves you because of the way you are, not what it does for them. One of the things, oh boy, here you go, my wife's going to love this. I love about my wife is how she cares for people. She has a sensitivity. And, and, and uh, when we got married, I was an insensitive person. I tend to be very insensitive. And I know a lot of you are saying right now, no, 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 Bob. You're the most sensitive man we've ever met. I understand that. But that's only because of the way God worked through her. I was young, I was insensitive, and I was totally blind to how I hurt people and how I could easily say something flippantly and crush someone and walk away happy at that I said something cute and funny and have no idea that they were crushed and upset. And God brought this woman into my life who sometimes would catch up to me and say, do you realize what you just said? What? That person, you really hurt that person. I did? You know, just oblivious. I was oblivious. And, and so, so, I mean, it wasn't like, I, I love you because you're so sensitive. I was too insensitive to know that she was sensitive. I don't know how that works. I was very happy in my ignorance. Let me just say that. And now she has ruined me. I get choked up and cry almost every Sunday here. Now I think about it, yeah, thanks for nothing. (laughs) Jesus loves you, not for anything that you bring to him. Not for anything that you bring to him. He loves you, all about you, everything about you. He loves you. Think about that. So in this first chapter, God's people aren't mentioned. God is not mentioned. And yet, God is at work. We know that as we move through the book. If you just read this one part, you'd be like, I don't have a clue what's going on. 
If you only stopped at the first chapter, you'd be like, yeah, the book of Esther's wacky, right? But as you read it, you start to see how God's working. Then you look back to the beginning and you go, oh, I see what he was doing. Did you ever realize how often that happens in your life? You go through stuff, you go through stuff, you get to a certain place, you look back, you go, oh, I see what he was doing. He was working. He was protecting me. He was loving me in spite of the fact that I didn't even know what was going on. So God is working. And, and the Jews who are living in Susa at this time, they definitely didn't have any idea this whole affair was going on. It's totally irrelevant to them. They're an outcast. They're a minority group. I mean, this is TMZ stuff. That's all this is. This is gossip stuff. I mean, you know, I, 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 this is the, my weirdness. I think about how this would come across. You know, I, I, I can imagine Vashti going all Aretha Franklin on him, you know. You better think what you're trying to do to me. R-E-S-P-C-T. So TMZ, you know, there's the headline. Vashti disses Xerxes, sings R-E-S-P-C to him. Be, and that's what, but, but for the Jews there, they don't have a clue that's going on. But these events pave way for how God is going to raise up one of his people to save his people from a destruction that they don't even know is coming. So God does not seem to be here in this book, and yet he's all over this book. And we see it more clearly as we look backwards and explain events that come along later by what has happened here. And this happens in our lives. Oftentimes, those times where we wondered where God was at, maybe even we doubted if God was there, and he was at work in a way that we hadn't even seen. And we won't see until later. Maybe you've seen it now. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you'll see it even later. But it's easy to feel like God has deserted us. But he's not absent. He's working. And they didn't recognize it at the time. No one recognized it at the time. Who would know? So we go right back to the beginning. Does God seem absent in your life? Do you wonder sometimes if he cares? Do you wonder if he's even there? Let this text encourage you. Our God is always at work. He is always working. He is always working ultimately for good and not evil. And if you're here, you're not a Christian. We're, we, we believe that you are here because God is working. Now, you may be here because somebody invited you. You may be here because there's a guy you're interested in, or there's this girl you're interested in, or, or, or your parents dragged you here, or your husband or your wife dragged you here. That may be what you think. That's why I'm here. But we believe God's working, and that you're here for a reason. And if you think it's accidental circumstance, we beg to differ. And so there's this story that we're starting now in the book of Esther, which has to do with God's grace, his love, his mercy. It's, it shows this king, which we obviously now, especially because we're further ahead, we compare with Jesus and we see the differences. We see how Jesus has affected us. And we're being taught a lesson. Don't trust earthly rulers. Don't trust earthly governments. They will not get you what you want. Trust God in all of this. Because he is working. The great king is working today in your life. And you may not see it. It may be in the background. But he is working. And I encourage you to take heart in that when things don't seem 
like they're going the way you think they should. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book as, as, as we go further into this book and we, we see unfolding your great plan, your great plan for saving your people and ultimately leading to Jesus, the Savior of the world, and how this all fits together, that 500 years before Christ was born, we're seeing him being prefigured in people's lives. And so, Lord, we thank you that we can trust that. We can trust you to be working in our lives today. And as we see you work, we'll be quick to give you the praise because you're a good God. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take an offering now. And as they come forward, I'd like to say, if you're a guest here, if this is your first time, uh, we're not asking you to give. You are our guest. This is what our regular tenders and our members do.